diversity has the potential of causing problems. The Jews and the Gentiles had a lot of strife between them. They were separate. They were different. They didn't want to be together, and it caused problems. Men and women are different, and that diversity can cause problems. We saw in the book of Acts in chapter 6, the native Hebrews and the uh, Hellenistic Jews, the ones who had adopted the Greek language and culture, became different. They were diverse, and it caused problems. In the book of Colossians, when Paul is talking with the people, he has to remind them that in Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew nor circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythians, bonds, or free. He says, but Christ is in all and in all. And I think he had to say that because they had that great diversity there in the city of Colossae. Wherever there's diversity, and to some extent there, there always is, you know, we, we pretty much look pretty similar in here, but we've got different income levels, different ages, different backgrounds, different education levels. There's, there's always diversity when you have a group of people, and, and there, there is here as well. When there is diversity, there is the potential for division. Division is what is really the opposite of unity. But you know, simply being united is not the solution to division. Give me a, I'll give you a, a couple of examples. At the Tower of Babel, the people were united, but they were united in rebellion against God. He said, go ahead, spread around and fill the earth. And they said, no, we're going to stay right here and we're going to make a name for ourselves. They were united, but in the wrong direction. When Moses went up onto Mount Sinai and he was receiving the law and he was there for a good while, the children of Israel became united. They wanted a God that they could see and touch. And they told Moses, we want you to make us a God. They were united in rebellion against their God. So just unity isn't the answer. The answer or the solution to vision, to division, is not simple unity, but unity around the right thing or around the right one. In the Old Testament, Israel practiced segregation. It was the Israelites and the rest of the world. And they were separated from anyone that was not willing to worship and obey their God and the laws that their God gave them. And that effectively meant if you want to unite it all with Israel, you become one of us. You become a Jew. You, you follow our laws. You worship our God. You dress like us. You eat like us. You do the things that we do. When the gospel began to spread, and it spread to all the world, there is now great diversity. And with that, the potential for division. But also, a great potential for God to be glorified in the unity that comes amid diversity. So our unity has to be around the right thing. It has to be around the right person and his cause. Unity around that person and the truths about him and his cause is really the subject of what we're going to be talking about this morning. Before we get into our specific passage of verses 4 to 6, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you have made people, and we are diverse. We are all different from one another, and that's by your design. Lord, we know from just living in this world that those differences often cause divisions and, and 
hatred and dislike and all sorts of things between people who are different. Lord, you have decreed that it should not be that way among your people, that we should be united. Help us as we look at our passage of scripture today to understand what that unity is and just commit ourselves to becoming a united people, both here at Rocky Mountain Bible Church and with true believers wherever they are in this world. And let people be able to look at us and like you said, look at us and know that we are followers of you because of the love that we have for one another. Lord, that is not part of our fleshly nature. But it is part of a nature that is becoming like Christ. We pray that you would help us to do just that and begin in that process or continue in that process today as we look at your word. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read verses 4 through 6 again. It says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. And these are the truths around which we, the church, are to be united. But they're not given in isolation. He didn't start his book by saying there's one body and one spirit. He's, he has those first three chapters that we've been studying now for six, almost seven months. And all of those first three chapters are talking about all of the amazing things that God has done for us. And we don't need to recount them every week, but we need to keep those things in mind. That's the context in which he now changes from the theological or doctrinal section to where he's now going to say, since you know all these things of the great blessings that God has given and what he is doing in building his church in this world through his son Jesus Christ and you want to know what you should do about it now we're going to tell you and then as he makes as Paul makes that transition from the doctrinal to the practical he tells the people that he implores them to walk worthy of our calling and that that word implored in I, I think in in our translation here, it says he urged them. In the King James Bible that I memorized it, it said, I beseech you. And we don't use that word beseech much anymore, but they all have the same idea. And it's like the strongest possible word he can use without just commanding them with, un, under penalty of death. It's like comes somewhere between, I'm pleading with you for this, and I'm insisting on it. This is the thing that we ought to be doing. And that is to walk worthy. And then as we saw last week, in order to walk worthy, we have to strive for unity in the, of the spirit, in the bond of peace. And that is within the church, um, When we're talking about you, uh, within the church, that's where we need to be walking in unity. Later on, as we go through Ephesians, he's going to talk about how we're supposed to walk before the rest of the world when we're interacting with out, people outside of the church. But here, Paul is talking about in the church, you are to walk in unity. And then he told us in those first three verses, in order to do that, we need to demonstrate love with four particular characteristics, humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another. Just, that, that, should, that alone should tell you something about us as a group. We are like everybody else, and if we're gonna put up with each other, we're gonna have to do it with humility and gentleness 
and patience, and you're just going to have to put up with people like me. <laughs> and, and each one of you know that you've got your own particular things, and you just hope people will just put up with you. And he says, that's the way it is through humanity. You are a diverse people, but you can walk in unity. Maybe a good way to put it all together is to say this, just to treat one another with, with understanding. <clears throat> Knowing that we are all sinners saved by grace. We may be at different places in our walk with Christ, but we have all got the goal of becoming like him. And just also remembering that we all fall short of what you expect of us and what we expect of ourselves. And we do that so often. But we will all one day be like him. We will be like Christ when we see him face to face. So now I can push this thing, see if we get there. Oh, I guess that would help. It, it, the switch is on, but the buttons don't. Ah. Well, make sure I'm pushing the right button. Yeah, it's not doing anything. Thank you. You can go ahead to the next one. Yeah. So here's our big idea. If we are walking in a manner worthy of our calling, then we are walking in unity. And unity that is focused in the right place. So let me ask you a question. Are we, as a group, are we united in our desire to walk worthy of God? And I would hope to see a whole bunch of yes. Yes, we, that is our desire, that we would walk worthy of God. And that means walking in unity. So, if that's the desire, the next question is this. Are you willing to commit yourself as we move along through this book of Ephesians? And it talks to us about how we're to walk in unity and later how we're to walk before the world. Are you willing to adjust your thinking and your actions about unity of the body? Are you committed to a unity that is required if we're going to walk worthy of the Lord? Even if it means you've got to change something. And I, I can tell you from experience that I'm sure most of you guys have learned yourself too, the older you get, the harder it is to change anything. Well, but we serve a great God who is worth changing our thinking for. So as we go through the rest of this book, I really hope you will just determine in your mind now that you will commit yourself to submitting your, your way of thinking and where necessary, changing your actions to being conformed to what the scriptures say instead of what I just think it ought to be or the way I've always done it. So, since I just got to the big idea and we're already a ways into this message, if, if you're worried about how long this is going to take, I'll tell you, I only have one point. It's a pretty long one, but just one point. And then a couple of uh, points of application. And the one point really is this, and that is that we have a plethora of reasons to be united. Or put another way, we have an abundance of truth to be united around. And that's what our passage is today. It's talking about those things around which we unite. It's broken up in the three verses. Each one has a few things to say. The first one says that there is one body and one spirit and one hope of our calling. Now, go to the next one. This passage in 1 Corinthians will kind of clarify that. It says here, 
For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. So though we are all diverse, we have a reason to be united because we are all baptized into one body. We are made to be a part of one body. And it's specifically here referring to the universal church. In this particular case, it's not talking about specifically Rocky Mountain Bible Church or any other local church, but the entire body. So all of us, all from the day of Pentecost until Christ returns, who know Christ is their Savior, are all put into one body together. You know, it, it just seems like those people who live over in Zambia or Russia or South America that we never have to interact with, so we don't have to put up with them, it seems like it ought to be really easy to just feel united with them. But somehow it's those other people that we tend to take pot shots at and point out how wrong they are, meaning we're right and they're wrong. Just think about some of the people who have contributed greatly to Christianity. Martin Luther, John Wesley, Ulrich Zwingli, Billy Graham, John Calvin, D.L. Moody, R.C. Sproul, John Piper. Quite a diverse group there. And every one of those men have contributed greatly to the body of Christ. But you know what? I probably wouldn't join a church that was led by any one of those men. Now, I would be very happy to pray with them, rejoice in their walk with the Lord, and worship with them. Why is it that I can say I wouldn't join their church, but I can be united with them in unity around Christ? It's because every one of those men and myself all hope in the same calling. And calling here is not a calling like uh, to a particular vocation. It is your call to faith in Christ. There is a general call to salvation that the world gets. The gospel is declared and everyone is called to trust in Christ. But as we know, many will not. But there's an effectual call, a call God has directed at you if you are a follower of Christ. It's what we see in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. He says, and those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And if you look at all this, you see it was determined before the foundations of the world. And yet, and it will be completed in the future when we live with Christ. And yet he talks about all these things as they were in the past because they are so absolutely certain. Well, because we have this same unity in Christ, we can be united with people, people who are different than us. You know, I expect that someday Zach and I and a whole bunch of other people and all of those men whose names I listed off will all sit at the feet of Jesus and be told about all the things that we were wrong about. But it won't be about our calling in Christ and our faith and confidence and trust in him. Because we all understand that we were lost and without hope. We had no hope in and of ourselves. We had no hope in any philosophy of man. But our only hope was in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not to say that those 
differences that we have are not important, the differences in our interpretation of the Bible. There are people out there, I have some good brothers in Christ that I've seen their lives and I can see their devotion to God, but they believe that they can lose their salvation. And I think that's wrong. There are people out there that are, I've gained from, from their teaching. And they take babies and they baptize them. And they, they sprinkle water on them and consider them to be baptized. I think that's wrong. We would choose to wait until a person makes their own profession of faith and declares their faith and trust in Christ and then we would immerse them in water because that's what we believe is the best way to picture the death, burial and resurrection of Christ and so we're different there I have plenty of friends who are true believers and are in denominational churches and we think that a church ought to be autonomous having the group of believers there discussing together, searching the scriptures, choosing their leaders, and then being responsible to Christ first and foremost, and then being responsible to one another within their group with no person or authority from another church directing how they're to do things. You know, I, I could not and would not be allowed to be in any kind of a position of leadership in any churches that taught those things that I just mentioned. And yet, we all have the same hope. We are still able to walk in the unity of the Spirit. We can pray together. We could even worship God together. Now, there is a difference between not cooperating with somebody, we'll call it that, um, a church that we know is full of true believers, we may not cooperate with everything that they do. But there is a difference between that and separating from them. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. So there is one body and one spirit, and that is all those who are called with the same hope. It goes on to say there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. The word that's used here for Lord is used in other places. It's translated master, and it's a word in, if you went back to Christ's time and you heard that word Lord, you would know they're talking about the guy who's in charge. He is the master. And it's, it's translated that way just a couple pages over in Ephesians 6, 9. He, let's see. It says, and masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven. And there's no favoritism with him. So there it's talking about an earthly master, so they translated master. Here it's talking about our master, but he is God, and it's translated Lord. And the idea is he is our God, but he is also our master. We're to obey him. You know, we, we have a lot of masters, don't we? Different contexts of our life. If you're driving down the highway and a police officer puts his lights on, He's the boss there. You pull over to the side and you say, yes, sir, and you do what he tells you to. When it comes time to vote, there are rules put in place. There's people in charge of that. You follow their rules. They're the ones in charge, not you. You can't go into the voting polling place and say, you know, I think you're doing it wrong here. Let's change this all. It's not going to work that way. I had a, an interesting time for, for a while in, in my church back in Michigan had one of my best friends and we both at different times sat on their church's board. He was the choir director 
He also owned a business, and occasionally I worked for him. So we might go to church and be in a business meeting at a time when I was on the board and he wasn't. I was in charge then, and he would submit to what I told him. Then we'd go to choir practice, and he was in charge, and I would submit to what he told me. And we'd go to work the next Monday, and he was in charge, and I would do what he told me. We had different masters, but we have one who is the ultimate master, the one that we share in common with believers wherever they are in the world, or even really wherever they are in time. The, you know, Peter had the same master that we have. And we are each individually accountable to him. Each one of us is responsible to have a clear conscience before our, our leaders in our local church and before our ultimate leader, our ultimate master, Jesus Christ. And the same is true of fellow believers in a church up the street. They're not responsible to our leaders. They're responsible to their leaders. They make commitments between themselves, responsibilities that they take upon themselves within their church. And we do the same thing here at Rocky Mountain Bible Church. They will have commitments to their leaders and their fellow members just as we do. But ultimately, all of us must be responsible to Christ as he teaches us in his word. And, and very thankfully, we are not called to do his job for him and sort that all out and determine why they need to follow our way. We all simply need to follow Christ and his word. So he is our one Lord. And we also have one faith. Now often we talk about the faith as being the body of doctrine that we believe. But here he's talking about the most important aspect of faith. It's, it's, it's kind of hard because scripture is all breathed out as the word of God. It's all therefore very important. But some is more important than others. If you doubt that, let me read to you. 1 Corinthians 15. And at the beginning of it, Paul is talking to the Corinthians there and he says... For I passed on to you as most important what I also received. Here's what he said is most important. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That is important. More important than a lot of other things. He says here's what else is most important. He was buried. It means he really did die. He died he died for our sins, not just because somebody killed him. He died specifically to take our place because we should have died. Because scripture says the wages of sin is death. That's what we deserved. He took that on himself. He died for our sins. And he really did die. He was buried. He was there for three days. But then he also says, here's what else is really important. He rose from the dead. He says, you know what? There's more than that. He didn't just raise from the dead in the hearts and minds of his followers. He rose from the dead. He got up, walked around, and he was seen. He was seen by Peter. He was seen by the 12 apostles. He says, Paul is telling the Corinthians this. He says, and then he was seen by more than 500 people. And if you don't believe me, most of them are still alive. You can go and talk to them. He was alive. Now, as you look through history, you'll see that there have always been doctrinal and religious distinctives. There were even in Paul's day, he had to go to the Jerusalem council and say, here's what I've been teaching. And they said, well, this is what we've been teaching. But as far as the gospel goes, it was exactly the same. He says, we're not going to put our customs that they had there in the Jerusalem church and make what we as Jews are doing, make you as Gentiles do the same things. But you have to be right on the gospel. 
these people understood that while they may have differences, they may even look at scriptures and come to some different conclusions on some less important matters, when they were right on the gospel, they were brothers in Christ. And they were all part of one body. Even though there were times when people don't handle those differences really well, they do understand that they are brothers in Christ. Let me give you an example of one of those times. If you're a history buff, you know about a preacher named George Whitfield. He was one of, if not the greatest of the early American revival preachers. He would preach to vast crowds out in open fields. Though when he was very young, he was mentored by a man named John Wesley. John Wesley was older than Whitfield, and he taught him much. But Whitfield became a rather famous preacher in doing his, his outdoor evangelism. And people saw the effects it was having. It was called the, the time of the, the Great Awakening. I keep mixing that one up with the Enlightenment, which was totally different. But, but the Great Awakening, people were coming to Christ in droves. And so Whitfield helped John Wesley to begin a preaching ministry similar, where he was preaching to these big crowds. But as time went on, Wesley began to uh, criticize some of the doctrinal views of Whitfield. See, Whitfield was quite Calvinistic in his doctrine, and Wesley was very Arminian in his doctrine. And Whitfield pled with, Whit with Wesley not to air their differences publicly, but to just have those discussions between themselves. But those differences were very much out in public, and they remained to varying degrees until Whitfield died. And he died some 20 years before uh, Wesley did, even though Wesley was an older man. But when Whitfield died, do you know who preached his funeral? It was John Wesley. But people knew about those differences they had. So somebody came up to Wesley and they asked him, Brother Wesley, do you believe you will see John Whitfield in heaven? And Wesley says, no, I don't think I will. Because he will be so close to the throne of God and I will be so far away I'll never get the chance to see him. They had their differences, but they knew that they were brothers in Christ. That's the unity that we have to have. And hopefully we'll learn to deal with those differences in a way that is still honoring to, to God. So, there is one body and one spirit. There's also one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. Talked about the one Lord and the one faith. And the one baptism is not here teaching us about baptismal regeneration. That is, that you have to get baptized in order to be saved. Rather, it's referring to the baptism of the Holy Spirit and receiving the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Again, let's go to 1 Corinthians, and it will, it will kind of clarify this. 1 Corinthians 12. Thanks, Derek. You can keep it up with that better than I am. <laughs> it says there, nope, that, yeah, 12 and 13. I'm going I'm to read 12 and 13 to you. I, yeah. It says, for just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. So who baptized us into one spirit? It's really easy to look at that and say, well, the spirit, we baptized us into the spirit. But the baptizer here is Jesus. 
How do I know that? Well, John the Baptist was baptizing people in the Jordan River there, and people were, would ask him questions, and one of the things that he said is that I baptize you with water, but he, the one who's coming, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus will, the Messiah, is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's not the only one who said this. When Jesus rose from the dead, before he ascended into heaven, he said in Acts 1.8 to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So Jesus told them, you're going to receive the Holy Spirit. When did that happen? Well, just a short time after Jesus ascended to heaven, the disciples are all sitting around in a room together. And it says in Acts 2, verses 3 and 4, it says, They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So there is one Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. Jesus baptized us in the Holy Spirit. Now, in the book of Acts, it's a book of transition. It had to come at one point in time when it began. But we can see through Scripture that as time went on, as people came to know Christ as their Savior, they were at that time baptized into that one body. And they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, where in our uh, passage that we're reading, it said they will be baptized, or in the First Corinthians passage there, it says we'll be baptized by one spirit into one body. But that article that says by is the exact same article, the word that John the Baptist used when he said, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Those words with and by in English are one word in Greek. So Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. So there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And the last verse says there is one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. There is only one true God, and that God is the Father of us all. Now, when you use the word all, you have to talk about who all is. You know, there are, there are certainly people out there who says, look, it says all, and all means all, so we're all brothers. All brothers in God. We have one God, the Father, and we're all his children and all brothers but you know that's not the way we use the word all. If I, next week, we'll have a potluck. And I will say, you are all welcome to join us. I don't mean every single person in the, on the face of the earth. That would be all. I mean all of you who hear my voice right now. And in this case, he means all of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ. We know that's the case because it tells us that in John 1.12, where he says, But to all who did receive him, Jesus Christ, he gave them, the ones who received him, the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. So if you're here and you don't trust in Jesus Christ alone, you haven't received him as your Savior, you are not God's child. But if you have, we have one father, and that makes all of us siblings. I know it's hard for you to imagine, but siblings sometimes differ. <laughs> I think it's probably harder to imagine a family of siblings that never differ, and yet they remain siblings. And this is true not just of 
us here at Rocky Mountain Bible Church. This is this all includes all from the day of Pentecost till Christ returns who have received Christ as their savior. Those are our siblings. Those are the ones that we are going to spend eternity in heaven with. At that time, we'll all know what was right about all of the things that we insisted on and what was wrong. Well, this is the abundance of truth that we are united around. There is plenty of it. And in these things, no matter what denomination or type of church you come from or what you insist on doing in your church, we can be united in Christ because we have that same hope of our calling. But unity does not always require participation. There's a variety of reasons that two congregations may not participate together. That doesn't mean that they don't have unity between them. There are the, the obvious things, geography, language differences. We don't do a lot of stuff with the church over in outer Mongolia. Yeah, we couldn't talk to them. It'd be a long commute. It's just not practical. Even though we don't cooperate and do things together with them, we can still, we should pray for them. If someone from there comes to visit here, we welcome them. We can help them in time of need because they are brothers in Christ. So besides those obvious things, there, there are doctrinal distinctives. Even if we agree in the gospel, it may well be confusing to people if you start mixing people together and the preacher one week tells you that if you sin again, you're going to lose your salvation. And the preacher the next week says, you can never lose your salvation. One tells you one thing and one tells you another. And that just makes things difficult. Now, these, these doctrinal distinctives, people, people hold them because that's what they understand Scripture to say. They don't have the liberty to say, well, I really believe Scripture says this, but all right, I'll, I'll just go along with whatever you say. Just like we understand things about Scripture that we're pretty convinced is true and right. We're not just going to drop that all aside because they say something different and we want to be united. No, we're, we are united in our faith in Christ and we accept that there are other differences that shouldn't divide us. They may put us in two different places in our worship, but it's not division. It's not a separation. We're going to talk about what that is in just a moment. There are differences in service styles. Some have what we call high church that has a lot of liturgy in it. And it's, it's very heavy. And others are extremely informal. And we have our idea of what ought to be done. And so we try to make our services the way we think would be honoring to God. And so do they. We just come up with some different conclusions. There are custom differences. I have a lot of friends that go to churches where most all the men wear suits every week. The ladies wear dresses and hats. And they do this out of conviction. They are convinced that's what they ought to be doing before God. And there are others where the pastor shows up in shorts and flip-flops. And you know what? I wouldn't be real comfortable with either one of them. We seek to do things the way that we think are honoring before God. Now, when I talk about those differences, I'm assuming, of course, that these are all gospel-preaching churches, and the folks there are brothers and sisters in Christ. And I can wish them Godspeed. I can pray for them. I can come to their aid in time of need. 
and I can consider myself united to them in Christ. But there does come a time when we have to separate from another church or parachurch organization. Now, this is a definition that I've come up with. It is uh, a definition for what what I'm going to call institutional separation, when an organization separates from another organization. Institutional separation is a form of church discipline. But instead of being between a church and a member, it's between a church and an organization with which we have had an ongoing relationship that may lead people to associate our ministry with theirs. Now, one of the key things there is that ongoing relationship. We're not called to search the world for anybody who we really disagree with and officially separate from them. Uh, There's a lot of people in this world and a lot of organizations, and we would do nothing else if that was our goal, is to separate from everybody we ought to separate from. But if we have an organization, let's say a sister church, maybe we we have fellowships together, we go to each other's services at holidays, we do things together, and people look at the two and they say, oh yeah, those are sister churches. They're, nah, I guess they, they aren't the same denomination. They got different names and stuff, but yeah, they're really the same thing. When one of those churches or organizations should come out and deny the gospel, we would treat that much like we do other church discipline. We would go to them and plead with them to repent and to turn back to the truth of the gospel. If they didn't listen to us, we would take some more with us and we'd go and talk to them again and plead with them to turn back to the truth of the gospel. If they wouldn't listen when more went to them, we would come here and bring it before this body and say, look, these guys have just changed their doctrine completely. they now insist that Jesus isn't God and that everybody gets to go to heaven or whatever it is that they do to deny the gospel so we can't accept that. And then the church would formally write to them and say, would you please turn from your sin and turn back to the truth of the gospel? And if they still refused, we would formally separate from them and have no further fellowship with them until such time as they repented. That's always the goal of of, uh, church discipline is to cause (laughs) repentance that you might be reunited again. And that would be our goal, to encourage repentance. Except for this kind of separation or if a member in the church had to be disciplined for open, unrepentant sin, then we still strive for unity both within our local church and with other members of Christ's universal church. If there's a lack of unity, it's the result of sin. If it's your sin and that's causing disunity, Recognize it, confess it, and restore unity. By the grace of God, you have the ability to do that. Don't be the one that destroys unity, which God says is the first step for walking worthy of Jesus Christ. If it's the sin of another, seek to restore unity. If it's open, serious sin, Lovingly encourage repentance, be forgiving, and restore unity. If it's a thing that would not lead to church discipline, but it just causes division and disagreement and it breaks unity, you can, ins- you can just stop insisting on having your own way. Instead of griping and reminding everybody that you just don't agree, let it go. Unity is more important than paint color. It's more important than activity choices or personalities or whether my ideas are implemented or not. 
be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So our, our big idea, once again, go forward a little there. Uh, you'll have to go a few times. I skipped a lot of this. It's okay. Our big idea, once again, if we are walking in a manner worthy of our calling, we are walking in unity. And unity focused on Jesus Christ and his word in the context of this local assembly. That's our, our concern here. So I ask you the same question as earlier. Are we united in our desire to walk worthy? And are you willing to submit yourself to the teaching of the scriptures as we find here in Ephesians? Are you willing to practice humility, gentleness, patience, and even bearing with us annoying people? Being committed to unity is where you have to start if you're going to walk worthy of the most amazing God and Father who is willing to call us his children. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we've been long here. Thank you for patience of people. Lord, I, I do pray that we would just each think and consciously make the decision to be united in Christ. Both here in our church where it will probably be the most difficult because we have to contend with differences and with each other's personalities. But that we would be committed to that unity and also that we would be committed to being united with brothers in Christ wherever in the world or at whatever time they are and focus on that which we have in common, our common calling to salvation in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray as you taught us to that things would be here on earth as they are in heaven. We know that there will be unity in heaven as there is even now. So we pray that that would be the case among your church in this world. We'll thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A complete in thee, since we are one body and in one spirit, and we have one hope, one faith, one baptism, one Lord, one God.